Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Gary, thanks for joining us. Such a pleasure. Fantastic. So today we're going to talk about some of your new work which I had the pleasure to read yesterday. I found it very entertaining, I must say. I loved all the pop culture references. I haven't seen many management books that quote Game of Thrones, so I was very impressed when I saw that. (laughs) I'm going to get straight to the meat of the book. And what I saw was a paradox that I felt the book was putting forward. On the one hand, it's saying that for a long time, companies have tried to create wealth and productivity by almost driving out employees and automating them and trying to fit them in as widgets. And we're reaching a point where we've sort of reached a law of diminishing returns where we have to find ways to get the best out of employees. Have I summarized the book for you? Well, I think that's a a pretty good summary. Yeah. I mean, we have a management model that was designed to turn human beings into robots. We've succeeded at doing it. Now that we have real robots, we can let human beings be human beings at work. I like that. So I was thinking about this, right? This book, well, I'm not going to call it the book because I think it's bigger than a book. The idea, the concept, the genesis almost means we have to rethink why and how we, I don't like the word manage employees, but what we expect of employees. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. You know, most organizations are still kind of bureaucratic at their yeah. core. They still are built around these hierarchical organizations. Uh, you know, companies have four, six, eight or more layers of management. And I think that management model, that mashup of of uh, uh, command structures that go back, you know, as far as human history, that mashup of kind of military command structures and then the principles of industrial engineering, yeah. that's a product of the late 19th century when most yes. employees were very poorly educated, when information was expensive to move, when scale was the primary advantage, when change kind of meandered along, none of those things are true anymore. And yet a lot of organizations are still stuck with models that literally were you know, designed to make human beings as reliable as the machines they served. And you know, there's definitely a value in reliability and focus and efficiency and discipline for sure. And yet, as you said a moment ago, those things are kind of diminishing returns mm-hmm. in terms of creating wealth and creating value. Now we need people who bring their initiative, their passion, their creativity to work. And most of the management system we have was designed to ensure that doesn't happen. In fact, uh, uh, Max Weber, the great apologist yeah. for, for bureaucracy writing in the early 20th century, he said bureaucracy is, is perfected to the extent it is dehumanized. Yes. And you'd think, you know, maybe that we, we should have escaped all this by now. But the data, Michael, says otherwise. You know, what? Here, here's a couple of things we know. We know that uh, only 17% of employees are engaged in their work, and we know that's not about the work, it's about the way they're managed. We know that only one in five believes their ideas, uh, their opinions matter at work. About one in 10 says they have the freedom to experiment or try new things. And that the US Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, tells us that 70% of all jobs require little or no originality, which says nothing about the people in those jobs and everything about the way those jobs were constructed. Yes, I mean, you mentioned in the book. So here's the thing, right? If we want to bring out the best in employees, this book is indirectly 
alluding to the fact that we've got to invest in employees from a young age to make sure they have the educational skills to be able to do their best work. Because the book talks that it sets the stage when people become employees. But you've got to look at what happens at educational levels, at university, high school, kindergarten, and so on. So is that something that that you've been looking at? Or is it does the book just take off from when they become employees? Well, you're absolutely right. This is all embedded in a deeper challenge of, you know, having an educational system that delivers uh, people uh, into employment that have the skills you need in the 21st century economy. And as we know, our schools often fail to do that. Um, having said that, having said that, you know, I was talking uh, a couple of weeks ago to uh, John Ferrioli. He just stepped down as CEO of Nucor, America's mm -hmm. largest, yes. most profitable steel company. And he said, and this is literally a direct quote. He said, Gary, I can take just about 99% of people that I find in small town America that are show up in our factories, and we can teach them how to be world-class at what they do. Yes. And he said, the problem is not so much that people are not arriving with the right skills. You know, we can teach those skills. The problem is that our organizations are still a caste system that 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 mm. basically assume credentials are the measure of a human being. Well said, Gary. And so, you know, and Thomas, sorry, please go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying, well said. You know, when you said we put too much emphasis on credentials, it's not the only education that matters. Well, for sure, for sure not. And um, you know, you see the companies that have turned on that human capability on the front lines, and there's a few things they have in common. One they teach everyone to think like a business person. Yes. So, for example, if you join Southwest Airlines in your onboarding, you are going to learn about the economics of the airline industry. You're going to know exactly why load factor is important and why fuel costs are important. And you will know at any point in time how you're doing on all those parameters because it, it influences your bonus. So they teach people to think like business people. They give them the autonomy they need to solve problems right there in, wherever they work. They tend to organize those teams into small uh, business units with their own P&L, so you really feel like you are an owner and you have a financial upside. Well, in 99.9% .9 of organizations, some or all of those things are missing. Mm. And so you know, it, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't give people a financial upside, if you don't give them the chance to grow, if you don't invest in their skills as, as business people, and then you go like, well, you know, we really can't trust these people to make yeah. important decisions. We have to micromanage them. And then guess what? Those people give up. They leave their passion and initiative at home. And then you turn around and say, yeah, like, you don't get much out of them. But, you know, one of the ways I, I like to think about this is economists, a lot of public policymakers, you know, we, we talk about low-skilled jobs. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I think that's entirely BS. Yeah, I don't know. I what, agree with you. What is a low-skilled job? <laughs> now, what they mean by that is these are jobs that don't require formal qualifications. That does not make it low skill. What makes it low skilled is that people in those jobs have little opportunity over time to develop their skills, move on, and become more valuable. And so I like to think these are these are not low skill jobs, no such thing, but there are a lot of low opportunity jobs yes. that are out there. And yet the companies that have figured out how to turn on that capability, they pay way above the average, not because they're just generous, but because their people are, are solving interesting problems and doing more than expected. So they pay above, above average, and they, they'll take on all comers. They'll beat anybody in the world. They're not afraid of, of global competition. They're not afraid of automation because their people are no longer robots. They're solving you know new challenges every day. So I think we've kind of painted ourselves into an intellectual corner there by, by thinking that, that, that you know the measure of a human being in the workforce is what's the degree 
rather than what can you accomplish when we give you the tools and the environment to think and act like an owner. I like that. I'm going to unpack some of those very useful points you raised so that the listener can understand each one and, and think it through because you said a lot of useful things there. Let's start with the first one. The way the world, the way management treats employees right now, it's as if they're a necessary evil. We, we don't really want you. doesn't matter what we, we say about you. You're a big cost on our income statement and we want to eliminate you as quickly as we can. And we're going to manage you in such a way that you're not very smart. We're going to tell you exactly what to do. And if you deviate from that for even one second, we're going to fire you. I mean, that's pretty much the way the world works today in corporate America, and not just America. Yeah, sadly, Michael, that's really not much of an overstatement. You know, you, you think about the fact that the average person you meet just about anywhere around the world today, you know, can probably buy a car or a scooter or something, but they, they buy their own transportation. Yeah. Many will buy their dwellings, depending on the country and so on. And yet those same people, when you put them at work, they can't, you know, they can't buy a $100 chair without getting some exactly. permission. And so we still have that overhang. And so many organizations are kind of an industrial caste system that that distinguishes between managers and employees, between thinkers and doers, kind of the clever and the compliant. And with, you know, and that's just, it just doesn't, like, it makes no sense anymore. And at the heart of it is precisely what you were alluding to there. There is a unstated, but a very deeply embedded belief, uh, almost, in fact, it's more than a belief. It's kind of like a paradigm, it's a worldview that says the organization hires human beings to produce products, services, and profits. So if, if you think about it, that sounds so simple, but in that uh, little orientation there, it is a human being that's the instrument. Yes. The organization hires people. In fact, we call them human resources. What an awful thing. I, I'd yes. love to ban that from business lexicon. <laughs> and so it, 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 all the companies we profile in the book have turned that thing around. What they think is people join an organization to make a difference in the world and to earn a living, but the organization is the instruments through which people do together what they could not do alone. So I remember more than a decade ago when, when Zhang Rumen, uh, chairman and CEO of Hire, the world's largest appliance maker based in Qingdao, China, unbelievably revolutionary management model. He, he visited me in my office in, in California. He read some of what I was doing at the time. And I'll never remember what he said. He said, I want to build a company where everyone gets to be a CEO because people are not a means to an end. They're an end of themselves. Yes, I love that. the first time I heard CEO quote Emmanuel Kant and the categorical imperative. But if you take them, if you take Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines, you know, Herb was, was famous for saying every job is just as important as every other job. Now, there's a market out there. And so some skills are more valuable. They're, 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 they're more scarce than others. So they command a higher price in the wage market. But I can tell you that does not that does not make them inherently you know, more essential to creating value. And so Herb's view is like, we're all in this together. There's not one part of, you know, and, and then you act accordingly. So people very quickly in any organization, you get a sense of what is the prevailing view. Is the prevailing view that people are a resource or is the prevailing view is the organization is an instrument that we use together to do something extraordinary. And if it's, if it's the former, uh, you're almost lost before you've begun. So I think, you know, everything in the book that we write about starts with that fundamental rethink of, mm. you know, what is really the, the, what is the position of human beings vis-a-vis -vis their organizations? Yeah, and the point you make in the book, and you've raised now very well, is that whenever we talk about raising the salaries of people who, in inverted commas, do 
non-essential or, or routine work like a barista at a Starbucks and so on. The prevailing view is that we're doing charity by raising their salary. But what you're saying and what you explain with a lot of case studies is that when you're raising their salary, you're also teaching them to add more value. So the net effect for the company is that it's profitable even though you're paying them more. Well, and absolutely. And you know, and it's not about paying them more for the same work. It's paying them yes. to bring their brains to work and to solve problems, right? So I think, you know, if you take a Starbucks, you brought them up, so let's stick with that. You know, there are a hundred, a couple hundred, I'm sure, critical jobs yeah. that are required to make a Starbucks work, from how clean it is to how well the coffee is made to the kind of greeting people uh, come in to, wait, to where the furniture is laid out to how the online order, all of these things. Yeah. And I can tell you, every single there, person there, if you invest in them, you give them the opportunity, they're going to have ideas on how to do that better. Every single one of those stores, if you think about it that way, will be a laboratory where people will be every day saying, you know, how do we experiment with something different? We don't want to degrade the customer experience. We're not going to take a financial risk. But where do we experiment with this? I mean, for one very large, large retailer, which I, I probably shouldn't mention, but, you know, we trained 70,000 people in this retailer, gave them all an online platform where every day they can, here's my idea, here's what we're trying. And so you turn the entire company into laboratory, yeah. entire company into this problem-solving engine, because here's, here's the mistake I think a lot of people write and think about the impact of automation make. They assume, and perhaps rightfully so, but they assume there is some finite number of routine jobs to be performed in the economy. Yes. And that's, that's, you know, that's probably true. You only need so many truck drivers or so many whatever it be. The mistake they make is to assume there's some finite number of interesting problems to solve in the world. Yes. So, you know, Toyota's employees generate more than one million improvement suggestions a year. Wow. Right? There's a reason nobody over 40 years has caught Toyota in terms of the quality of manufacturing. It's just, you know, they saw early on. Now, they, there are other things in their business they could probably be better at, maybe innovation, a few other things. But in terms of at least their manufacturing, they said, we are going to invest in everybody and teach them how to become an inspired problem solver. And um, so that's just, you know, and then beyond that, you start to say, well, how do you give people the financial upside? So, like, I'm all for raising the minimum wage, you know, within, I guess, some reason. But the real question is not about how do we raise the minimum wage, it's how do you give people the opportunity to create more value than you might have expected. You know, back to Nucor, every employee at Nucor, uh, they have a bonus system that's tied into capital productivity. So Nucor buys a big piece of expensive equipment and puts it there. It has some rate of capacity of tons per hour or whatever it may be. And once you hit that kind of rate of capacity... Yeah. Any additional productivity you're able to wring out of that equipment, a big part of that productivity gain goes back to the employees who are thinking, lying awake at night, thinking about, so you'll have somebody who would tell the story in the book, and it's, it's one story of thousands at Nucor, of somebody who's looking at one of the big ladles that moves molten metal, and every so often you have to disassemble it, it has a liner in it, the liner erodes, you have to change out the liner, uh, the supports on it uh, uh, have to be changed. So somebody's looking at that going like, is there a way to make this last longer? Could we line this with a lighter material that puts less weight and less strain on the joints? And so this person on their own bat is talking to metallurgists, talking to ceramicists, talking to people around the world, figuring out how we might do this, you know, ordering stuff in, running small scale experiments, perfecting this, and then saving the com company a bunch of money. All of that, not all of it, but a huge part of that productivity gain goes back to that individual. Mm -hmm. Right. So what incentive do people have? You know, that's, you know, and most organizations is very, very little incentive because we've already decided before we even began that they really cannot make 
much of a difference to the business. Yes, and just for the readers, Gary has given his mentioned Nuco, he's mentioned Hire. Those case studies are in a lot of detail in the book. There's also a case study of Handelsbanken, which I liked. There was a case study of Michelin and Southwest Airlines. So if you want to know more about them, the book has the details. But coming back to this, Gary, I think let's get into sort of the, the details of how to bring this about. Because a lot of managers, a lot of corporate executives believe firmly that it is their role to sit in an office in New York or Chicago to come up with a detailed set of instructions and best practices which they email to a branch in San Francisco, New Mexico, and it need to and it needs to be followed to the letter. Now you and I agree that there's no way a brand a head office in New York can know all of the variability in every single location and be a perfect fit for customer needs. But if someone is listening to this, what would you tell them as they try to change their thinking about this? Well, there are layers here for sure. Let's start at the top. I mean, without doubt, in every organization, you need control. And bureaucracy and that hierarchical rule-driven uh, you know, legacy organization, that was basically, that's the technology of control. It's how do you make sure that people are following the rules? You know, when, when we began to build large companies and employees came together, we quickly realized, at least at the time, that you needed this kind of super employee called a manager yeah. who was going to be the enforcer. You know, Frederick Peter talked about the fact that <laughs> enforcement. And so they were the ones that made sure that people were, were, you know, following the product standards, the safety standards, the work rules, and so on. So, like, fine, control is important. I think of, you know, the next generation of, of uh, iPhone, probably announced later this year, is probably going to run on either 5 nanometer or 7 nanometer uh, silicon chip, systems on a chip. Well, five nanometer is the length that your fingernail is going to grow in the next five seconds. So how much control do you need over how many variables to be able to do something at this scale? I am an enormous fan of control. The question is, how do you get it? In yes. the old model, you got it by, you know, a lot of oversight, uh, very narrowly constructed jobs, um, a lot of SOPs, you know, predefined roles, which is great, except you completely kill any capacity for, for innovation and improvement. So the other way to get that is, the way we get control is, A, we give people the skills so they can manage themselves. That means they, they do have to be smart business people. You give them real-time data so they know exactly on how their little part of the business is doing. You hold them accountable. They have a financial stake in making that thing better. Their performance is visible to everyone in the organization, so there's no place for poor performance or mediocrity to hide. And you find that when you do that, you do not need you know, many managers. One of my favorite stories in the book, and it's just inspiring no end to me as somebody who had, had a first job in healthcare, <laughs> is a, a Dutch uh, home health provider, Birdsorg. Yeah. They employ 16,000 nurses and home health givers. They are by far the most efficient uh, healthcare organization in the Holland. Uh, they beat everybody in terms of patient satisfaction, cost, and so on. They have the lowest possible turnover. They've been voted Dutch Employer of the Year five times in a row. And you see a business of 16,000 employees. They're divided into small teams of 12 uh, nurses. Within those teams, they've divided up all the managerial roles. You have like somebody called a treasurer, somebody called uh -huh. a housekeeper, somebody called a, called a mentor. So they're doing the work of managing in those teams. And then they're connected together on a social platform called WeLink. And it and, and so if you have a question you can't answer, you put that out there and you yeah. have, you know, 16,000 other people and the performance of every one of those little teams is visible around the whole company. So if you're falling behind, 
People are going to know it. They'll probably offer to help. You're going to know who's doing better. You go find them. I do not need heavy-handed control mechanisms there. And in that company, they operate a 16,000-person company with about 50 on-demand coaches with a, a central staff of 50 people, mostly in IT. And get this, Michael, two managers. Wow. That's a span of control of one to 8,000. And they're delivering a complex product with all kinds of safety issues, ethical issues, and yet they're doing it with almost zero bureaucracy. So if somebody tells me this cannot be done, I just think like, no, it can be done. I've seen it. And so, you know, you still need all that control. You need nurses who are very uh, clued into professional standards, who are responsible for making sure that if I have to start an IV or if I have to help somebody out of their chair, how do I do it safely? They understand the protocols. They're all there. You can look at them and you're expected to do that. But I don't have somebody riding herd on you. You're an adult. And when you're accountable and when your performance is transparent, I don't need a lot of people looking over your shoulder. Yeah, I like that example because it's an example of an industry that is literally life and death, highly regulated. There's a lot of room for a big blow up, but the model works. And one thing I found consistent across all the case studies is that there doesn't seem to be a central R&D function. Everyone is part of R&D. And everything's pushed down to the operating units, whereby I like the Nuco example, whereby they treat every facility as its own P&L. And if demand drops, it's the role of everyone in that facility to go out there and find a way to fix the business. And they do it. There's no one telling them they have to do it because the incentives are tied to the performance. But coming back to this, it seems as if it's not just command and control of management decisions has to be decentralized. It seems that you have to train your employees at the front line to think about R&D, to teach them how to read an income statement and balance sheet, to teach them how to do conflict resolution, how to sell. It's about pushing all those skills to the front line as much as possible and keeping a very, very bare bones management structure. Yeah, you know, I learned that uh, oh, more than a decade ago when I made my first visit to Morningstar. It's the largest tomato processor yeah. in the United States. I think they have around six or 700 employees. But, you know, the first time I was there, I realized they have not even a single manager. Employees write contracts with each other every year. They report to each other. And I went to the founder, Chris Rufer. He is legally, he's the president of the company, but he refuses to take the role of CEO. Yeah. But I said, Chris, I said, like, this is unbelievable. You have a company with no managers. And he looked at me and said, like, Gary, I think you missed the point. I have a company where everybody's a manager. Yeah. And so we, what we've done is we've taken all those manager roles that Peter Drucker and others talked about, and we've just simply distributed to the people that have to do the work of managing right there every day. And so, again, you know, it's it does take training. Uh, you don't give people this accountability until they're ready to have it. But the alternative is really that you infantilize an entire workforce. And let's not pretend that these skills are so complicated that you know it's impossible for people to master them. They're not. They're mostly fairly basic uh, skills. But, you know, if you start to do that, you do create a question, what was the role of all these managers? When uh, the Chinese company hire, yeah. when they migrated their new model, they redeployed 12,000 middle managers. Those jobs simply do not exist anymore. Now, most of those managers moved into these small little micro-enterprises, as they call them, very entrepreneurial cells. But there were no, there's no managerial jobs left to do because all the managing is still getting done, but it's not getting done by a professional cast of administrators. Yes. 
And, you know, the reason I like that model, I like what I see at Birdsaw, what I see at Newcourt is that you are essentially turning every single employee into a business person. Yes. And, you know, as you know, Michael, in the last few years, for all kinds of good reasons, which you may want to come back to, in the last few years, there's a lot of debate about whether capitalism is in crisis. Mm -hmm. And for sure, in some ways it is, which we could definitely talk about properly. But here's what I think. I think the real problem with capitalism is we don't have enough capitalists. We have too many employees and not enough people who think like owners. Yeah. And changing that is not, despite all the big fans of ESOPs and so on, changing that is not primarily a matter of giving somebody like 0.00000002% of the shares in the company. It's a matter of, of giving employees the two things that define entrepreneurship the right to make business and critical decisions, and a financial stake in your success. Mm -hmm. You do that, and you can have a company filled with what I would call micropreneurs, however big you are. Yeah, I mean, because if you look at businesses today, most of them focus heavily on perfecting a process, refining it, and passing it down the organization, and they really value and defend that process. But as the book says, it's about the principles that you need to get right, you need to make sure everyone's aligned in the principles. You've got to teach them how to manage a business, and you've got to give them an incentive. Now, the interesting thing is that I've never really read of a company that's failed miserably doing that. Because every single person, as you were mentioning from the Newcore example, Michael, every single person feels accountable for the company's success. You know, think about this for a moment. In most organizations, there is a tiny minority of employees whose compensation is at risk depending on competitive success and yes. customer satisfaction. You know, in the companies I was describing, everybody's compensation is at risk. You know, at, at Newcore, let's say I'm a little microenterprise with 20 people, and my job is to you know, make and sell three-door refrigerators. So I contract with other microenterprises inside of Newcore to do that. I'll contract for some design help, for some R&D help. Maybe I need to hire some new people. I'll contract for manufacturing, but I'm literally writing contracts with other internal microenterprises. Now, every one of those contracts has a performance clause in it yes. that has a big bonus, a big upside that depends on the success of that product in the marketplace. So if the product doesn't succeed, guess what? R&D doesn't get their bonus. HR doesn't get their bonus and so on. So the moment it becomes clear, hey, maybe we're going to run into a problem, you have everybody, rather than finger pointing, it's not my problem. That was marketing. That was it. Yeah. You got the whole group of people swarming that problem and saying, how do we fix this? And so, you know, you have this terrible conceit that, you know, somehow it's the CEO who's responsible for strategy and direction. Well, if so, the rest of us can just like sit back and hope that that person is steering the company in the right direction. By the way, history says that's a very risky bet. That is still the conceit. You know, I I saw, and I'm not going to embarrass the, the CEO by, by throwing out the name, but there's a CEO from a very well-known, probably Fortune 50 company. I uh, read this just you know a couple of months back in Harvard Business Review. He said, there are certain opportunities that only the CEO can see and certainly and, and big calls that only they can make. I think that's rubbish, mm -hmm. right? I All agree. the evidence says the CEO is likely to be the last to know. He's so right? far removed from the front lines. of kowtowing executives who want to bend reality to fit the prejudices of the leader. They are not, you know, they're not every day out there with the next generation of customers understanding yes. the needs, what's going on. And so you see it, and I'm not picking on any individual personal organization, but I see it again and again and again, that, that when you have an organization that's mostly paralyzed to drive change and so on, if you wait for a problem or opportunity to be big enough to finally break through the 
the orthodox thinking to finally capture the scarce attention of the CEO, you are by definition behind the curve, which is why virtually every change program is a catch-up program. I like that example. You know, another way of thinking about this, and another good example is if you look at the former Soviet Union and you contrast it to what the Chinese are doing. You know, the, the Soviets were very centrally organized. Five-year plans, no one could think, no incentives, right? There were no incentives in the former Soviet Union for anyone to get off the stool and fix anything. And that's why, you know, the products were not so good. But if you look at China now, and you use an example of higher they understand that you need an, an incentive model. You need to pass ownership. So, you know, when someone says, hey, you know what, I'm not sure this will work, I think you've got two very good examples of where we've seen over 50 years what happens without incentives in place. Well, I, uh, you're right. And the fact is that the average global 1,000, Fortune 500, whatever company uh, is actually way more like the Soviet Union inside yeah. than it is like an, like an open uh, marketplace. And again, what it reflects, and I think there was a time, Michael, where you could get away with this, yes. but it reflects a kind of arrogance. In fact, the Austrian economist, uh, Friedrich Hayek, I think he had a way of talking about this. I'm going to get it wrong, but here was the idea. The idea was it is easy to believe that you understand more of a situation than you do, that you have more yeah. knowledge and information than you actually have. And the way I see that manifesting it in companies, I'll give you an example. I was talking to Jim Schnabe, who is a co was a co-CEO of SAP, yeah. the big German software company, now is a the non-exec chairman of Maersk, uh, the, yeah. the uh, um, a Danish uh, logistics company, shipping company, and Siemens. And he said that when he left uh, SAP, they had more than 50,000 KPIs, right? Key performance figures. So the arrogance that lies behind that is that we are smart enough at the top to yes. deconstruct the entire like performance process to define these very like synthetic goals that are not, they don't relate to a P&L. They're, they're like, you know, we, we need to sell more of this product line, that product line. We need to capture more of customer X or Y. So you have these synthetic goals. And the arrogance is that if everybody does exactly what they say against all of those disaggregated goals, somehow that will re-aggregate into success. Well, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Yeah. And so the organizations that I'm describing in the book, they say, listen, <laughs> we don't know enough about the top to build like a top-down performance model. There's just too much complexity, too many things going on. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna give people a few simple incentives, make sure where they, they know where the boundary lines are in terms of ethics and so on and so on, and then incentivize them on the front lines to make the smart trade-offs, to, to run after run after growth, to do whatever's required to make the customer happy. You know, there's, there's a reason, and again, if I get this slightly wrong, I'm obviously not looking <laughs> at the book, but I believe that United Airlines has, their employee manual has something like 60 pages in it. Wow. Southwest has five pages. It's about all that you need to know, right? One is saying, let me trust, you know, I'm, I'm gonna train the heck out of my people. I want to know that they have great values. I want to make sure they love the company and then I gotta let them go. And the other says, gee, we really can't trust anybody. I think, I think for many CEOs, the idea that the future of your company depends on the capacity of ordinary human beings to use their judgment every day is like almost too scary to contemplate. Yes. Yeah. But, but the alternative is institutionalized idiocy, <laughs> right? Where you are trying to run things by remote control from the top and you are going to find you are wrong way more times than average. I don't know much about United, but if you look at any company that has a 60 page rule book, that's a bunch of rules. But if you've got a company that has two or three pages, it's a set of principles. 
They don't prescribe what to do. They just tell you these are, this is how we want you to think about it. This is what is close to our heart. Use this as your North Star or some guide, but yeah. we can't tell you what and I to think do. As you, as you mentioned earlier, as, as I argue the book, I think, and I understand why, but in a lot of organizations, there's this, there's a kind of myopic uh, fixation on processes and practices. Yes. And and they're important, right? I mean, you know, there's at Morningstar, even though they don't have any managers, there's a way, there's a process, there's a discipline that is used when employees negotiate contracts with one another. It's not a free-for-all. There's a way of doing it, and it evolves over time. And no, you can't just like, you know, just change how that, how that gets done on a whim. So I, I have no problem with that. The dilemma is that if you look at the companies that have really broken that old model, and what I find interesting, Michael, is you know some of these companies like Gore, they've been around a long time, um, yeah. and dozens of case studies have been written about them. Right now, there are a lot of case studies being written about about hire. And what what I find curious is, all right, so why haven't more companies followed suit? And here's part of the answer. It's a fairly complicated answer. But here's part of the answer. Often, when we go to benchmark other companies, the question you ask is, what do they do differently? Yes. When the real question should be, how do they think differently? Mm, I like that. If you look at hire, almost every process you see there is just mind-bendingly different than what you'd expect to find in a typical bureaucracy. From how they contract to one another, to how they hire, to how they choose their leaders, to how they leverage ideas from outside of the firm, and just like everything you look at is different. And so, so what often, what I've seen happen again and again, you know, more traditional companies will go look at some of these Vanguard organizations and they'll get enamored about like, well, oh, I really like the way they do performance reviews. I really like the way they do planning. So they bring that particular practice back and then they try to graft it onto the old bureaucratic rootstock and wonder why the graft doesn't take. Yeah. Or use another analogy. It's, it's like, it's trying to put a two on a dog, hoping you'll make it a ballerina. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of it, you just have a stupid looking dog. And so, that's why, and this is really the core of the argument, one of the core arguments of the book is that in any field of human endeavor, you ultimately reach a point where you cannot solve the new problems with the old principles. Right? There is no way to understand the subatomic world if you start in Newtonian physics. It doesn't make Newtonian physics wrong. Yes, it just yes. says like you have to come with this with completely new thinking around uh, indeterminacy and non-local correlation and superposition, all the other. So, And I think that's where we are today with management. You know, as long as we're tweaking systems and processes, but the underlying DNA, the DNA of specialization, standardization, hierarchy, formalization, routine, as long as that's the core DNA of the organization, nothing gets better. No organization ever gets fundamentally better than it is right now. So you have to go back and say, okay, if I want to build something that is resilient, if I want something that is an engine of creativity, if I want something that instills daring and passion in people, what principles would I start with? And the ones we talk about in the book are, you know, principles like experimentation, openness, meritocracy, and, and community. And then, and this is true of all these organizations we've been talking about, they start with a set with those kinds of principles. And then sometimes over decades, they start to say, right, if we took the principle of meritocracy or openness or experiment, if we took that seriously, what would we do differently? Mm. And they simply start to elaborate that thing out, you know, over time, over time, over time. Let me give another analogy. Let's say you're looking at a couple that's just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. It's like super happily married, just like an amazing marriage yeah. work really well. And you say, okay, I want to go study that. So what you do is you spend like a week in the household and you go, well, like, isn't that interesting? Like, you know, he's, he says, thank you. Like many times a day, uh, she comes over and just puts his hand on his shoulder and says, how yeah. are you doing? And so at the end of it, I have like these six things they did. 
And then you say, okay, that's it. That's like what I know. That's not. There's something way deeper in the heart that's driving that. And you yeah. can't like extract these few exterior things. But again and again, you know, we do that. So we have to, you know, really go back to that worldview. How do you think about people at work? And back to first principles. Well, you mentioned in the book very well, I can't remember where, but isn't it the most American thing in the world to unleash the freedom and boldness of your employees? So if I'm an American CEO, American manager, I mean, we're, all we're doing is asking these guys to go back to what is American, right? The land of the free, the home of the brave. Give people some freedom, give them some guidelines, give them some incentives, and they'll do good things. Well, that's, you know, that's the irony. You know, we, we get, we get the irony, isn't it? Book to hire. The, the irony is, you know, I went to China and found the most capitalist uh, exactly. company I've ever seen on the face of the planet. <laughs> You know, and obviously, you know, China is still run by the Communist Party and they have a huge, uh, you know, drag on their economy, still incredibly bureaucratic state-owned enterprises that they're trying to shake up. And and I know the, the leadership in China wishes a lot of those enterprises were emulating higher. It's not so easy to do. But yeah, that, that's kind of the irony. And so when people critique capitalism, and I, I, I have my own critique for sure, but I say, you know, the real problem with capitalism is we don't have enough capitalists. Yes. And I'll just keep banging on that refrain because when you start to see every single person as a potential entrepreneur, every single person as a potential business owner, I mean, here's what we know, Michael. We know that 77% of, um, of Americans would like to run their own business. Mm -hmm. And when you ask them why, it's simple. I want control over my destiny. I want a shot of the brass ring. Okay, cool. 77%. And yet we, we wrongly assume that the only way that can happen is if those people like, you know, take the huge financial risk and go off and, you know, start their own company, which is like, great, go for it. But what we really have to ask is not how do we like, you know, get more startups? How do we have more uh, uh, entrepreneurial enclaves like Silicon Valley? We have yes. to say, how do you light the fire of entrepreneurship in every single organization, large, large and small, and even in the public sector? Yeah, well, what you're saying is right. I want to just unpack that for the audience, right? Because you've said it a few times. You said that the problem with capitalism here and many places, we don't have enough capitalists. But what you're saying is not that we need more CEO capitalists. We've got to treat all employees, even the ones that are right at the front line who supposedly earn the least amount of money, as capitalists, empower them to make decisions, to think for themselves, and give them a share of the incentive. That's the key thing, right? Yeah, I think that's how, you know, if think about the last few months, few years, basically around the world, the establishment has taken a beating. Mm -hmm. And that can be more from the right, all the uh, drain the swamp uh, folks who vote for Trump. It could be from the left, all the young indebted college grads that would like to give socialism another chance and were big supporters of Bernie. It is the Brexiteers uh, in Britain. It's the Yellow Jackets uh, in France. It's the five-star yeah. movement uh, in Italy. It just, it goes on and on. And interestingly, whether you kind of think of yourself on the left or the right, what unites these people is not ideology. What unites them is a sense that the system no longer works for them, if it ever did, including all the recent protesters uh, calling for, for racial justice. And so we know in 2016, just before the last presidential election in the United States, 92% of American voters said the system is rigged primarily for the benefit of large corporations, you know, the bankers and the rich. Two months ago, uh, spring of, of 2020, a Harris poll said or found that only 29% of Americans said that right now capitalism is working for the average, average worker. And guess what? They are right. 
right? They are right. We have 44% of the workforce, 53 million Americans in so-called low-wage jobs. Those, that proportion is going up. We know that every generation since World War II, a smaller proportion of young people in every succeeding generation makes it into the middle class. We know that the bottom 50% of, of Americans have only 1% of the wealth. So there's a reason people are upset. And unfortunately, you know, it's gotten like hugely politicized uh, because politicians are basically people whose livelihoods depend on channeling grievances into their, you know, into their political party. But the fact is, every human being uh, that I've ever met in any country, they want three things. They want dignity. Yeah. They want to feel as if they matter and what they, number two, they want opportunity. They want to feel like there is a route where my life can get better. And they want equity. They want to have that sense that I've been treated fairly. Yes. And, you know, data we talked about earlier suggests, more than suggests, that people often do not find that at work. And if you don't find dignity and opportunity and equity at work, it's pretty hard, I think, to find enough of it in the rest of, of your life to kind of compensate for that fact. And if this wasn't enough to worry about simply from a social perspective, what you see across the OECD over the last uh, 20 years now is declining productivity growth, which makes it all worse. Mm -hmm. It fuels populism, it creates more income inequality. At the same time, as productivity has been going down, bureaucracy is, has been growing. We lay out the, the data in the book. Uh, 1983 to 2018 yes. in the United States, the size of the bureaucratic class more than doubles, while all other uh, categories of employment go up by less than 50%. And that's not primarily government regulation driving you know, the endless increase in managers, administrators, and so on. It's just the self-perpetuating nature of bureaucracy itself. And so I think, you know, there are competitive reasons to care about this. You know, you, you can't build a globally competitive enterprise today unless you are capturing every bit of human imagination and so on. I think there's an ethical or a moral or social reason to care about it. You can't have an economy or country in which many people feel they don't have that opportunity to get ahead. And I think there's an economic reason to care about it, because if we're ever going to get the productivity engine starting again... What we have to do is unleash a lot of this latent capabilities and just not getting used. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of this um, case study you had in the book of Michelin, the uh, tire company, because it is all about how do you implement this. And I can imagine a lot of people listening to this are going to say, well, we've consistently run our company top down. This sounds difficult. Now, you've given the example of China, and you obviously know China very well. I'm sure you know Vietnam very well as well. Another communist country, but probably the most capitalist people I've ever seen in my life. Now, both countries, I may be wrong on the numbers on China, but I think China opened up and started opening up in 1978. So they've only been exposed to capitalism for just over a generation, and they seem to have embraced it better than anyone else I've ever seen. So here's a country that doesn't know capitalism, but seems to be doing very well and embracing it and doing well at using the principles for their benefit. So what would be the lessons for someone here who wants to take this concept and roll it out? Everyone's going to say it's hard, but, but there are examples of companies and countries doing it very quickly. Yeah, I mean, what do you see in some of these countries? I see some of this happening in India as well. What you see is, you know, just like they did with other technologies, they're leapfrogging. You know, they're saying, right, we haven't had 100 years for... for all that bureaucratic thinking to be embedded in our business schools. And, you know, we don't have these 100-year-old organizations that have grown up and, and, and with all the layers and so on. And so, like, you know, why would you do that? So you see 
that capitalistic spirit uh, in a in a kind of a pure form. Yeah. Now, having said that, some of those cultures have a pre-communist history of being great traders and and entrepreneurs and so on. So uh, it's not like you know that wasn't there in the culture, although it had been submerged for a long time. So you're absolutely right. You know, but by the way. This is a spirit you find around the world, you know. That's true. Uh, yeah. if, if you go to Africa, if you go to Latin America, you know, go look at, at any sort of uh, a souk, a bazaar, a market, and you'll find people out there haggling and trading and, you know, and farmers and craftspeople and artisans and so on, figuring out what can I sell to my neighbors and what, I mean, this is not something that has any particular country. This is who we are as, as human beings. And yet, you know, we you can damp that down through a command and control political system. You can damp it down through command and control organizations. But it's it's kind of there. It's built into us. And it's something you, as much as anything, you have to unleash it rather than have to spend a lot of time thinking of how you're going to cultivate it. But in terms of getting started, the thing I think that's made it difficult, a couple of things that make it difficult, because we've thought a lot about why this seems so hard when in yes. many ways it shouldn't be. So I'll, I'll give two things. One is... You know, if you think about it, bureaucracy is a massive multiplayer game. And the game is played for the currency of positional power and then mm -hmm. the salary and perquisites that come with that. So unfortunately, though, winning the game of bureaucracy doesn't necessarily create a lot of value because the skills you need to develop to be kind of like a level 10, you know, bureaucrat is skills like hoarding resources, negotiating targets, protecting your turf, yes. deflecting blame, yeah. managing up. <laughs> so you get you learn how to do all of those things. And great, and, and you get ahead. One of the most disturbing statistics in our polling, Michael, was that 76% uh, of employees believe the primary way you get ahead in their organization is to be a better bureaucrat. But if you believe it's true, where's your energy going to go? But here's the dilemma. Once I've spent 10 or 20 or more years learning how to play that game, and, and like I'm now an EVP, SVP, whatever, somebody comes along and says, hey, Gary, we got to change the game. Right now, your, your power is going to depend on peer attested value added. If you're a leader, it's only going to be because people want to follow you. If people, if people don't think you're adding value, your subordinates can vote you off the island. That's a very disconcerting uh, message, right? You know, I, we tell this story in the book. You know, Pope Francis came, you know, he, he assumed, uh, the, you know, he became pontiff, vowing to uh, dismantle mm -hmm. much of the Catholic bureaucracy, much of the church's bureaucracy, the curia, and so on and opening up the church and making it more responsive to the problems and the challenges around the world, making it more internally honest about its own, own failings. And uh, so that was, I guess, 2013. A few months ago, someone said, how's it going? And he said, I feel like I'm, it's like trying to clean the sphinx with a toothbrush. And my argument is like, you better get more toothbrushes. <laughs> because what I think what a lot of leaders find when they really start to think about this is, even with all the will in the world, they cannot make these changes from the top down. Yes. They do not have enough hours in the day to go one VP at a time and say, we need you to be a champion for humanocracy. We need you to think about how you dismantle all these systems and processes getting people away. We need you to give up your positional power. We need you to go from you know manager to mentor, right? You just you do not have enough hours in the day to convince people to, to give up that power. And so where we've seen this succeed, and this is assuming you don't have like an immensely powerful CEO who can just make this happen through fiat, we think it has to be much more grassroots. So our sense is the way you defeat bureaucracy is not like with some all-powerful CEO or in some yeah. like Armageddon kind of battle, but it's when ordinary people across the organization say enough. 
And when they say, let me, right where I am, my team, right here, let me take one of these principles and see how it applies here, yeah. right? Maybe I only have a team of 10 people I'm working with. What would it mean if we were more open? What would it mean if we were more of a meritocracy? What would it mean if I give up my power? So what the story we tell in Michelin is, you know, one guy until recently been a factory manager. He, he was yeah. working at the time in corporate HR. But one guy goes around and he recruits about 38 frontline supervisors in a year-long experiment to give their power away. And so there was no, he didn't know how this is going to play out. There was no like big corporate change program because the, the moment if you kind of announce that goal from the top or you start with a whole bunch of EVPs, you're going to create a wall of resistance. So this guy started out on the front lines. And guess what? These people discovered frontline supervisors. When I give some of my authority away and I'm and my teams become more capable, my job gets better. I don't think, Michael, I don't think anybody really gets off being a micromanager, or not many people yeah. get off on that. You know, I mean, you know how hard it is to manage toddlers and even teenagers. Like, we are relieved. We are relieved <laughs> when they start to grow up and like and make their own choices, right? Yes. And yet, you know, I mean, there's, there's a reason that managers are less engaged than their subordinates. That's Gallup data. Because managers, they get it from the top, just like employees. But now I have to be kind of an asshole half of the time. And I have to be their micromanaging adult, infantilizing them. That's like not a comfortable. So what they found at Michelin is when you help people learn how to give away their, their power, how to equip their frontline teams and make that transfer, everybody, everybody's job gets better. The managers and supervisors, now I have problems to work on more interesting challenges of growth or, or helping this team to develop, or but I, I'm no longer getting woken up at 3 a.m. by the third shift to, you know, has a personnel issues they can't handle. So it's I think it's a very challenging kind of sticking point to get over as you ask people to give up their power and rethink their roles. But the fact of the matter is our experience is as people do that, everybody's work, you know, gets better. So let's unpack this, right? Because it's very, very important. So we have a lot of consulting partners and consultants who listen to this channel. And one of the hallmarks of management consulting is that change starts and is driven at the top. I mean, every consultant tells you that, right? But, but what I'm hearing you saying, and I like what you're saying, is that the role of the CEO needs to start the process but he can't drive it because he just doesn't have the way, there's no way for him to do it. So he's got to create an environment where it's safe for employees to experiment, for employees to speak up, for employees to feel that if I fail at this, I'm not going to be severely punished provided I don't do something totally ridiculous. So the role of a CEO in this kind of environment is to create an environment and make and create almost a safe space space for people to experiment. Is that a good way of summarizing? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Michael. It's exactly right. You know, the problem is there are certain kinds of things where it can just be implemented. Yeah. Get the darn thing done, right? There's like a recipe, whatever. But there are other things that have to be invented. And there is now no mechanical process of building a humanocracy. Now, yes. there's a way of getting from here to there, but there's not a plug and play. There's not a manual. And that's a good thing, too. And let me, let me suggest why. I wrote a piece many, many years ago, but I wrote an article for Harvard School called Strategies Revolution. Mm -hmm. And I think it was one of the first articles that talked about business model innovation and said that the most important thing about any strategy is how it's different from every other strategy. So today, I don't think any CEO would say, I want a strategy that's an exact copy of somebody else's, right? I mean, every we all know 
that you have to work hard to create a highly differentiated strategy that has a chance of producing highly yes. differentiated results. And you can't simply say like, well, let's copy Netflix or let's copy Apple or whatever. Now, interestingly, so I think people today, they get that around the business model, but they don't get that around the management model. Mm, yes. So, you know, what I, I book is, I don't say, go do the same kind of internal contracting uh, hires do. Go figure out their, they call it the value added adjustment. Go figure out that. Debt. No, 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 do not do that. But start instead of the principle behind it, markets, internal markets, everybody accountable to a customer, everybody being paid by customers. And so the challenge in any organization as you make this shift is you have to invent humanocracy for yourself. And, and there are principles that will guide you. We know what those principles are. But exactly how those are going to work and play out, how, how are they going to play out in resource allocation and goal directing and compensation and teaming in your organization? I hope, I sincerely hope that's a little bit different than how that's working at Nucor or one of these other companies. Because if not, there's no competitive advantage. And if you're doing basically the same way everybody else yes. is, and so, you know, the kind of consultant top-down model of change works when you're trying to do something that's really familiar and it's been mm -hmm. done 50 times. And like, okay, yeah, just like go do it. But I can tell you, it, it doesn't work for strategy. It's, it's interesting. Think about it. Fewer and fewer consultants are doing real strategy work. Yeah. Because you know, strategy we now know is no longer about planning, right? They, they, they all they moved all into into IT and digitization and yeah. so on because that's more recipe driven. I can scale that up, right? And we know from McKinsey, from BCG, from Bain, they are all united on around one fact, and that is that seventy five percent of change programs fail. Mm -hmm. So what we've tried to do is we've been thinking through this, and this is not just armchair. We're we're doing this in some very large, complicated organizations, but our our approach to this is get 10,000 or 3,000 or 500 or whatever your, your organization, get those people all in line, start to get them to talk about these core principles. Have them spend a week thinking about what would it mean if we were more open and ask them to kind of be practical. How would that change our management model? So somebody's going to say, well, if we were more open, we'd share salary data. Some will say, well, if we were more open, uh, we'd bring customers in much earlier in the development process. Somebody said, if we're more open, our whole planning process would be open to frontline employees. So you'll have like dozens, and, and where we do this, we get thousands of kind of little hacks where people are saying, gee, if, if that really, we want that to be in our DNA, this needs to change. And then you do peer review. You ask people, which of these seems like something that you know would really make a difference. You ask those people to work that up into a little, a little prototype, a little test, something can be done in a few weeks with a minimal amount of money. And then you go test this and you say, well, did that make a difference? Did people, and we have some very good examples of these little management hacks in the book. But I, I think that's the way you tackle this. I mean, the way, the way you evolve anything very complex is through experimentation, right? No, no, yeah. Nobody designed the today, nobody designed the ecosystem of the entire web top down. You know, yeah. what, what emerged with Amazon and, and Alibaba and Airbnb and Facebook? I mean, that emerged with, there's a platform underneath it, right? There was a sure. few simple rules about internet, but then, and that emerged through conscious expression. That's how we're going to have to build bureaucracy. So my dream is that in a year or two or five, no one will ever again use the word cascade when they talk about change. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and that change will, the change will roll up, not out. Because I believe that, in the future, virtually every effective change program will need to be socially constructed. Mm. The world is simply too complex for that to happen. I'll give you two quick parallel examples, two quite lovely examples. So I was in the office um, of uh, head of sales for one of the world's biggest tech companies. I already know them. 
about at that time had about 12,000 people in sales and they just changed the whole sales compensation model. I said, how'd yeah. that go? He said like it produced a, a poop storm. And he said, we had a lot of good people leave and a huge blowback and it was like disaster. I said, well, did you blog about it first? Were you out there having a conversation? Here's what I'm thinking I'm seeing. What do you guys think? What do you say? He says, no, no, that would have taken too long. So I said, great. You were able to drive something out there in three months, but now you're going to spend a year or two or three trying to undo the damage. And so I take that as one example. I look at what Diane Gerson, we don't tell the story in the book, but it's a video we're, we're going to have up uh, that people can watch. Diane Gerson, HR at, at IBM, a few years ago, they were trying to rethink their performance management system. And instead of them getting like a few smart consultants and people in the room and say, let's figure this out in all our wisdom, they basically ran a company-wide hackathon. And they said, what pisses you off about the old model? Yeah. How does it get in the way of your ability to deliver value to customers or to, or to innovate or just have a good time at work? And they got an immense kind of diagnosis. Okay, guys, what now what would you suggest that we change it? How do we make some of these critical trade-offs? And this thing was co-created in a very interesting way. And at the end of it, everybody knows why you got there. Everybody knows why certain decisions were made and not others because there are trade-offs, but they at least know the evidence and how we looked at them. Everybody feels they have a stake in creating that. And nobody feels that they were just like, you know, they had, uh, you know, the corporates coming down one more time with their with their tablets of, of wisdom to tell them what to do. So that to me is much, much more the model for the future. And, and what we lay out in the book is how do you start to hack your own little team? Yes. But how do you scale it up? Whoever you are, whatever your role, how do you how do you drive system wide change? Because, you know, I, I think. One of the saddest things, Michael, you know, it's obviously sad that a lot of people at work are not able to bring all their humanity yeah. to work. But I'll tell you what's, what would be the next thing on my list. It's really sad that most of those people don't think they can actually change the system in which they work. It's like the Matrix. And there's this deep helplessness that, you know, there's nothing I can do. You know, yeah. if, if the head of HR or IT or CFO or CEO is not like going to do this, then it all stays, uh, you know, it, it stays. And so I believe when we tell some wonderful examples, very practical from some very complex organizations like Britain's National Health Service, how do you change the damn system when nobody's asked you to do it and when you have virtually no positional power at all? To me, that is the interesting problem. Maybe the most interesting problem in business is how do you change the system and make it work for everybody, make it work for customers, make it work for stakeholders, even when, right, maybe some of the folks at the top haven't grokked it yet or compromised and whether they really, I mean, how do you do that? And, and, you know, it's not, it's not an us versus them. It's not about, you know, asking people to be like revolutionaries, but it is saying you have a responsibility to be an activist. You know, you love your organization, you love your colleagues, you love your customers, you know, this could be better. So like, like stop whining and start hacking and then talk about it, show what's been done, show the good results. And I can tell you, it will propagate, right? People are hungry for new and better approaches. It's not that, you know, but they're waiting for people who have the guts to stand up and take the lead. And my experience is that can be anybody. There's a nice example. It's a story you use of, the, I, think it, I think it was the National Health Services in the UK where they had something yeah. called a pledge day. Just You just had to say one thing you're going to change and do consistently. And that's all you had to do. And it snowballed into a culture change across the organization. So I'm thinking that if you're you know, struggling as a CEO or someone not sure how to do this, you can start with something fairly simple. Yeah, that's exactly. And and often with some real system-wide impact. There's a wonderful woman at NHS, 1.7 million employees, as, as bureaucratic as it comes. Wow. And she, um, she, uh, you know, she and a lot of young colleagues there were frustrated by the fact that 
a lot of a lot of providers there, carers, were spending more time kind of on bureaucratic tasks than, than caring for patients. And so they simply put up this little thing. It says a little pledge, one page. What's something you can do in your job to patient satisfaction outcomes? And uh, they put this up on a little platform. They, they they asked nobody for permission. They just did it. The first year they got 190,000 pledges. The second year, 800,000 pledges. And it became the single largest change program in the history of NHS because somebody said, I refuse to be helpless. I'm not going to spend time like negotiating the system. I'm just going to go around it. I'm going to find the natural, I'm going to build a natural pro-change constituency for people who are ready to get involved. And, you know, and today you can do this. You know, if you go back, um, you know, even, even a decade ago, Michael, most of the channels of communication organizations ran vertically. Yeah. And, and a being leader meant anything. It meant that you got to control the conversation. Guess what? No more, right? No more. And so now most of the, the, the dialogue, the communication is horizontal. And yet, yes. thus far, most of that horizontal is just really incremental and operational. So all these new tools, Slack and Basecamp and Microsoft yeah. Teams, whatever it may be, basically it's, been, it's a productivity tool that's supposed to do for white collar teams what uh, Microsoft uh, Office did for you know, individuals. Yes. Like, so we're just going to you know, share documents. Fine, that's great. But there's a much more powerful thing you can do with that. You can find the people. You can start a conversation. You guys, hey, guys, yeah. what sucks to you about our travel policy? What are you finding? Hey, guys, how can we start to change that? What might be a better idea? And what we find when we, when we do that in a little bit more disciplined way in organizations and we invite people into a process for hacking the management model, you know, when you have 100 people or 50 or whatever saying this process doesn't work or here's a better idea, I can tell you nobody can stand in the way of that anymore. Yeah. Right? You just can't. And so a lot of, of making this change is, is learning how to aggregate the power of these new social technologies to bring people together, solve these complicated problems, but also to be perfectly blunt, to overcome a little bit of the, the vested interests and, and the entrenched interests that so often like, you know, are, are, make it easy to kind of shut down individuals, but make it really hard to shut down a group of people who, who truly love, love their organization, want to make it better and, and have some great ideas for doing so. Yeah, and I think the key thing here is that, you know, anyone listening to this, you don't need to put together a business case for four months, send it to the CEO and the EVP to get permission to do anything. All you need is to get together with some like-minded people. You mentioned some of the technology tools. Share ideas. Make sure you all have the same passion for doing things and just do it. But here's what I've learned. In the individual, your capacity to make a change is almost entirely uncorrelated with your positional power. Yes. You know, I, I know CEOs who launch enormously expensive, multi-million dollar change programs and at the end achieve almost nothing, well, yeah. right? This is not about resources. People who change the world have four things. They have courage to tackle a problem that's bigger than their pay grade or bigger than their responsibilities, but, but they care enough to do that. Uh, secondly, they're contrarian thinkers. They know that if a problem has been there for a while, like more of the same is not going to work. So they're looking outside. They're looking for interesting examples. They're learning from other disciplines, but they're trying to bring new thinking to the problem. Thirdly, they're compassionate. Uh, and so they, you know, it's clear they're not in it for themselves. This is not about fighting their corner. And that means other people will take risks with them and give them some grace, you know, when they fail or they stumble. And then finally, there are people who are community minded. They never think about like, how do I do this on my own? Yeah. They're always like Helen Bevan at the NHS. How do I find the influencers? How do I find like, like let's let's mobilize? And if you build that in yourself, that the courage, the concern, thinking, the compassion, and that that community spirit, 
um, there's nothing you can't change. Honestly, there's nothing you can't change. So, you know, and I, I find it I find it amazing that, you know, I mean, all these CEOs who say, Gary, the world's changing so fast, we have to change faster. And I say, okay, yeah, that's true. So how many of your employees have you taught how to be activists? None, not sure anarchists, none. not terrorists, but activists, right? Oh, geez, you've never done that. Well, maybe that's where you have to start. I agree. But just as a wrap-up, right, the last point you want to make, it's an important point, and I mean, I'm sure you can talk to this better than I can. You need to be quite a mature CEO to do this because you're passing down power to the front lines and you don't know what they're going to come up with. Not in a bad way, but you don't know what they're going to decide is the priority, what product mix they're going to go for. They're going to make money. But you are deciding that as the CEO, you're not the all-knowing God. Your ego is not attached to the fact that you worked with a McKinsey partner to come up with a strategy. Your value is that you create an organization that runs on autopilot and you just provide some principles. And I think that's difficult for a lot of CEOs. It, yeah, it is. And it definitely takes a lot of humility. You know, when I was talking to some of the people at Nucor, I had a relatively senior leader there, at least in terms of, you know, where they sat in the in the pyramid. And they, they, they have fewer layers and about one third the number of managers and companies of that size is typical. But I talked to one fairly senior leader. He said, Gary, in this company, being a manager is the least noble thing you can do. It's our people who create all the value. And you have to get off on seeing other people thrive. That yes. has to be, you know, seeing other people grow and creating that, you know, that opportunity for them to do so. And I think, you know, leaders can still create a lot of value. But, but you know, the, the, the reality is today, if you have to use your positional power to get things done, if you, if you have to use the big stick of, of authority and sanctions and so on, your leadership capital is actually eroding. Yeah. Nobody has respect for that anymore, right? We have the most authority phobic generation in human history, probably. And, you know, if, if you don't know how to move people with persuasion and with appeals to higher principles and so on, like, you're not going to have any respect anyway. And so, yeah, it does take, it does take um, a kind of uh, personal makeover, if you will. We yeah. call it detox for bureaucrats. But to say my role is not decision maker in chief, it is not head strategist. If anything, my role is a system architect. I want to think about how do I build the, the incentives, the tools, the platforms that allow people to reach their own goals. It's much less Jack Welch and much more Jimmy Wales, right, who created Wikipedia yeah. and said, like, I'm not going to write all Wikipedia. I'm yeah. not the smartest guy in the world, but I sure would like to create something that allows the world's knowledge to come together. So if that's what turns you on, then, and you can make a contribution, people are going to respect you in your organization. But like everywhere else today, every place you go, you get raided. You know, when I, when I was a young, young faculty member at the London Business School, the first year I taught there, 1983, way before the internet. Yeah. But I realized at the end of my first term, every single student, 100 students, gave me a rating. And those all went into the library and everybody else could see them. Yeah. I understand that in that role, if I have any authority, if I had any clout, it's because people have said, hey, Gary knows what he's doing, or we like the way he teaches, or he's a good guy. But there's no positional authority that is useful at all to me. And I think that's more and more and more the case. In an extraordinarily complex world, moving at light speed, executive authority is worth very, 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 very little. Yeah. But the ability to inspire and motivate and protect and mentor, this is extraordinarily valuable. Okay, fantastic. 
Well, that sounds that sounds like the buzzer on my end. I'm actually late to another call. But, Thank you so much, Gary. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much. Oh, my, I, I loved it too. Thank you. You're so perceptive. Wonderful questions. And uh, let me know when it's up and uh, we'll hope your listeners will enjoy it. Take care, Gary. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.